story. It's the only story we really have of Jesus between when he was a baby and when he's a grown man. We don't have a whole lot about it. There are some other sources that record some other stories that may or may not be accurate, which is why they're not included. And uh, one of those um, involves, you know, doing, you know, doing a miracle because he was upset, you know, because somebody offended him one about doing something or another, so he gets mad and does, does something to put them in their place, you know, so that's, would Jesus do that? No, I don't think Jesus would do that based especially on what we know about him being fully God and fully man. He was, he was a fully human person, but he did not respond or think or act like a fully human person because he was also fully man, and so he had perspective and knowledge that we just can't, we cannot comprehend. So, um, so there's a, not a whole lot about it, but this is a very, a very interesting story, and so um, I just kind of want to dig in and, and set the stage a little bit. So they'd gone up to Passover. Passover is that, that thing that we talk about all the time because it's, it's what we kind of remember with our communion because Jesus became the permanent Passover lamb. And it's, it's a really interesting thing when you think about Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus traveling with his family to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover was a, a type and shadow of the ultimate Passover lamb, which is what Jesus would become. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his family, a feast that had begun a thousand years or so before and had been a tradition through all of these years, and it's something that was pointing to him. And so he's going to celebrate this feast with his parents that's pointing to him. It's a very, a very interesting perspective to think about that when you think about Jesus going there for that reason to celebrate with his family. But they would, they would travel, so they were from Nazareth, and so uh, by the shortest route, it seems like it would be about a three-day journey to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem, and they would travel in a caravan, usually for safety. You know, it's, it's safer if you're traveling in a big group of people. If somebody comes and tries to rob or attack or something, you've got strength in numbers, right? So they would, they would travel in a caravan and, and get, to get there together safely. And at a, at a thing like Passover, people would come, you know, from all over, all directions, and kind of descend or ascend, depending on which direction you're coming from, to Jerusalem and, and go there for the Passover. And then at, when Passover was over, they'd get back in their caravan and just kind of go back whatever direction they went. And so Mary and Joseph coming probably in a caravan, which would explain some of the, what seems to be a parenting failure on Mary and Joseph's part, that uh, they probably assumed that once, when they led their caravan, they're, they're going out, they're leaving with their caravan. Jesus is probably just with the other kids, a big group of kids probably playing and, and goofing around as the caravan just travels along. And then by the time they get to the end of that first day, they realize uh, we haven't seen Jesus in a while. So uh, we better see if we can get our eyes on him, and they can't, and then you can imagine the panic that ensues. I don't know if you've ever lost one of your kids or had one of your kids just kind of wander off. Uh, we've, we've had that happen twice. I don't know that it was necessarily a parenting failure, but maybe. Um, once, was, once was with Harry, and this was in our neighborhood at Halloween, trick-or-treating. We had gone around the neighborhood. This is when we lived out in Washougal, gone around the neighborhood and trick-or-treated. And so we came back and, and walked up, uh, walked up our steep driveway and, and go to the house. And it's bedtime, you know, so uh, Becky and the, you know, the kids are upstairs getting ready for bed. And, you know, I'm downstairs. I don't know what I was doing, but just assuming that all the kids are upstairs. And um, a few minutes go by. I don't, I don't really know how long, but a few minutes go by. And then 
get a knock on the door, and somebody says, is this your kid? Uh, yeah, that's my kid. It's Harry. He was like, what, two years old? Is that right? About two years old. And what had happened was as we were coming up the driveway, another family came up right behind us to trick-or-treat at our house. And he was two years old, and, you know, he just figured, well, I'm not done trick-or-treating, I guess, so I'm going to just keep walking off with this group of people and go do some more. And then this guy realizes, hey, I don't know you, and uh, brought him back to our house. And, <laughs> and then uh, the other one was at Disneyland last year when we were there, and uh, we were just, we were out in uh, down at, on the in California Adventure and kind of down in some of the kids' rides down on Paradise Pier, and we had just ridden the Toy Story ride, right? And we kind of come out, and there's a couple of exits. You know how in a lot of amusement parks, they bring you out the ride through a gift shop, right, that sells toys that are kind of themed on that to try to capitalize on your experience and get you to spend a lot of money that you don't need to spend. And so we, we go in that store, and then there's like three or four exits, and Harper just kind of wanders off and just goes off on her own. And Luckily, you know, she stopped and started crying, and another mother found her and said, you know, what's wrong? You know, do you know where your mommy and daddy are? And, you know, was able to bring her back to the store. Well, I, we were looking all over the ride. I mean, I went back through the ride. I was just kind of looking everywhere I could possibly think to look in all the corners, and then luckily, fortunately, this, this uh, lady brought her back. So, um, if you're a parent and you've ever done this, I know I, I went missing once as a, or twice actually as a kid. Um, I caused some grief to my own parents. Once was in a store, once I just left and went to my friend's house for a day and didn't tell anybody and that was fun for me <laughs> until I got home. And then that was when I met my dad's belt uh, for, uh, for, for my reward for doing that. But you know, we've, we've probably can, we can empathize. We know, we know what, what Mary and Joseph are going through when you've traveled. You know, and I was thinking about this, trying to put myself in her shoes because we had just, we've just driven across the country this past summer to visit my family in Ohio. So imagine traveling from our family's house in Ohio for an entire day, an entire day's trip from our family's house in Ohio ends up, you know, in you know, Missouri or Kansas City was about how far we got. So getting to Kansas City and then realizing I'm missing a kid and you're so far away that like there's nothing you can do. So I have to travel all this distance. There's no way I can just be there and find my kid. I now have to go and journey an entire day's trip back before I can even begin looking for my kid. You can imagine the panic that would settle in. Hundreds of thousands of people from all over the region were, would come into, the, into Jerusalem for the Passover. And caravans, like I said, they're coming in from all directions, and then they would go back out to their hometowns. And you can imagine the scenarios that get conjured up in Mary's mind was, man, what if, what if he ended up in the wrong caravan? What, what if Jesus is, is traveling with another caravan going in some direction? There'd be no way to track him down. There's no way to know where he is. Or worse yet, maybe somebody had kidnapped him or, or stolen him for ill-gotten gain. You know, there's all kinds of scenarios that kind of come into your mind and the panic that sets in as a parent. And worry must have filled Mary's heart. Especially when you consider the circumstances of Jesus' entrance to the world. 
He's 12 years old, but it's not that long since all the stuff that we've studied so far where Mary's going to remember all of these things, right? She remembered how she found out she was going to give birth to the Son of God. And the angel came and said to her, you'll give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I don't know about you, but I didn't get that kind of angelic announcement with any of our kids being born. And so, you know, but I still felt pretty panicked. But you imagine being the mother of the Messiah and losing the Messiah, right? I mean, it's like, uh, <laughs> whoops, yeah, it's like, uh, what have I done? I've done, you know, I've lost the promised one that we've been waiting for. He's just gone. The hope for our people was my responsibility. And I lost him. That's not the kind of way you want to get into the Bible, right? That's not the kind of story you want to have people remember about you uh, in the Bible. By the way, the Bible is filled with people who did stupid things, and that's how they got in the Bible. They're examples for the rest of us because of their stupidity, which I think is great evidence for our faith that because the Bible is full of real people making stupid choices and God bringing in redemption in different ways, you know, most other religions don't have examples like that in their faith. They put up the perfect examples, but we, we show how good God is in the Bible because of the mistakes that people have made. But that's still not the way you want to get in the Bible. It's not the, not the story you want to have about you in the Bible. I lost the Messiah. So they travel for a day, they come back, they realize, and then, you know, they probably go in and scour the town. They go to all of the places. It's like we probably would do. Okay, we stopped here, so let's go in and look here. We stopped here, let's go in and look here. Have you seen Jesus? Do you know what I'm talking about? Little boy, 12 years old. Uh, you know, he kind of looks like this. Have you seen, do you know where he is? No, not here, not here, not here, not here, not here. And they get to the temple. <sighs> And there is Jesus. And I don't think the video quite did justice, probably, of what actually took place. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, Mary's probably a better parent than I. But uh, you can imagine first, Mary, this is all conjecture, my thoughts, but Mary running up to Jesus, grabbing him and, you know, hugging him and squeezing Thank God you're safe. You know, you are alive. We found you. You are Okay. <laughs> And then grabbing him by the shoulders, pushing him back. This is how I envision it. What in the world were you thinking? Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now these are Mary's, this is Mary's recollection. So there may be, I would, I would assume that there's probably a little of polishing of the story. You know, she's not going to make herself look too bad in her recounting of the story to Luke. And so, so you know, she paints herself as kind of this cool mom. You know, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I think it was probably a little more, a little more dramatic than that. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't there. But the question she asked, do you have any idea the grief that you have caused your mother and father? Do you know how worried we were? Those were questions I got when I disappeared for a day. Why would you do this to us? What were you thinking? So, well, why, I mean, okay, they found them, so, so what's the big deal? Well, you know, Old Testament, Old Testament law, one of, the, one of the Ten Commandments is, you know, you know, honor your father and your mother, right? That's, that's kind of the basic framework for 
being a, a Jew, for being an Israelite, someone who followed God uh, in Israel. That's one of, the, one of the basic things you're supposed to do. And one of the ways that we do that uh, as kids is by obeying our parents, right? We obey our parents, and that is how we fulfill the Ten Commandments, that, that basic square box that God has set up of morality with the Ten Commandments, the ways that the way the world is designed to operate and to function is kind of the basic operating system for our world. That's how we do that. And one of those as children are supposed to honor their parents. One of the ways that we do that is by obeying our parents. Mary's question is, why did you do this to us? Why have you treated us this way? What was Jesus' response? It wasn't, I'm so sorry, mother. I'm so sorry, father. Maybe it was, you know, that's not recorded, but his question, or the question to Mary was met with a question back, just like Jesus so often does throughout his entire ministry. He says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? What was Jesus doing this whole time? Well, we learned that he was in the temple as a 12-year-old, a 12-year-old boy sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. As a 12-year-old, and, and you think about it, you know, 12-year-old, you know, ask the kind of questions a 12-year-old would probably ask, but he wasn't even considered to be an adult yet. He hadn't, he hadn't become an adult according to their culture. He was still a 12-year-old child. And what kind of questions would a 12-year-old child ask? Apparently, Jesus was asking the kind of questions that amazed everybody. Because what we hear is everyone who heard him was amazed at his answers and his understanding. So here, 12-year-old Jesus is in the temple with the teachers of the law and, and other people there listening to the teachers of the law, and he's having discussion and asking questions that are amazing the people there. That's what Jesus is doing this whole time. But this phrase, you know, he had to be in his father's house. He said, I had to be in my father's house. The King James translation says, I had to be about my father's business. And from my limited understanding of, of the language is that they're pretty much, at least in Old Testament thinking, Old Testament culture, one and the same. Being about the father's business is the same as being in the father's house. You can ask Rob about that later. He'll answer that if I'm wrong. But his response is, I had to be in my father's house. Because you think about it, Mary and Joseph are mother and father, right? I mean, so, so shouldn't he be with them? I mean, that's, that's father. That is mother. But look at the contrast between these two questions. Remember, this is in here for a purpose. Luke didn't just throw it in to fill in space. It's in here because he wants to communicate something. And I think there's a lot we can learn about this. We can learn first how, how amazing Jesus was and the knowledge that he had about, about creation and humanity and all of those things by the questions and, and the way that he knows the law and the Old Testament and all of that because he was there when it all took place. And, but there's, I think, a lot we can learn by constantly the contrast that Luke is putting in. He's putting in contrast. He's juxtaposing, putting things side by side to help show what is going on. And Mary's question is, why did you do this to us? But Jesus' question is essentially, don't you know who I am? 
Mary is asking, why, why wouldn't you think about your parents and treat us with honor? But Jesus' question is, you still don't understand who I am yet. See, Jesus' question shows that Mary hadn't grown in her understanding of who Jesus was. It also shows that they didn't understand that his priorities were greater than their perspective. What was important to Jesus was far more important than their perspective of who Jesus was. And their priorities were, were raising Jesus and, and being the family, you know, as, as they were thinking. But Jesus' perspective was much greater than that. And Jesus' question shows that the father he needed to be obedient to wasn't just his earthly father, but it was his heavenly father, which is where he came. So Mary wasn't really asking the right question. She probably should be asking the question, who is this kid? What kind of 12-year-old kid goes into the temple courts and amazes the teachers and the students by the questions and answers that he was giving? What kind of kid wants to spend time at the temple? And Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you'd know where to look. But Mary wasn't asking the right question. See, Mary and Joseph hadn't yet given Jesus his primary identity. They were still treating him as their child. But that was Jesus' secondary identity. He was, in fact, their child. But his primary identity, his, his most important identity, was Jesus, the Son of God, the, the Messiah that had come to save us all. And, and his primary identity was what drove him to the temple and to be with his Father. His primary identity was what was driving him and his perspective and his approach in life. So Mary wasn't asking the right questions. Are we asking the right questions about ourselves or about our family? Are we asking the right questions about our careers? Are we asking the right questions about whatever circumstances we're in in life? Are we, are we asking the right questions? And I think if we, if we can gain a little bit of perspective of what, what took place here in this interaction, we might be able to learn something that will really greatly help us in our approach to life. Are our questions that we're asking about our life, are the questions that we're asking based on our primary identity or our secondary identity? Are the questions we're asking about, about who we are, where we are, where we're going, what is in the future, what, what lies ahead of us, are, are those based on our primary identity or our secondary identity? So our primary identity, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've, if you've surrendered to his higher calling and his higher purposes for who you are, you believe in the work that he did and you're reordering, reordering your life around his ways and his purpose for your life, then your primary identity is no longer anything else but a son and daughter of the Most High God. That's your identity. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are a child of God. That is your primary identity. And we can get this from Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 through 9, to get a little bit of a better understanding. Paul is speaking, and he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
Because you are sons, God has sent forth his, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So there you go. The, because you are sons, because you are daughters, God has sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, recognizing our Father is our Heavenly Father. That is our primary Father. Therefore, because of this, we are no longer slaves, but a son and a daughter. And if we are sons and daughters, then we are heirs through God. Verse 8, however, at the same time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by, which by nature are no gods. At that time, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those by, which by nature are no gods or are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Listen to that, that, that perspective on who we are. He's just said, Paul has said, we are now sons and daughters of God. And he says, however at that time when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are not God's. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How is it that you turn back to, turn back again, go back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Are you living as a slave to your secondary identity? Or your tertiary, your third identity, your fourth or your fifth identity is is your identity as, you know, as, as a father or as a mother, is your identity as, as an employee or an employer, or is your identity as a citizen of this great nation, or is your identity as a political activist, or whatever we put our identities in, our first, our second, our third, our fourth, our fifth identities, whatever our identity becomes outside of Christ, ha, have that become, has that become so important to us that we're now slaves to something we were never designed to be enslaved to. By the way, for the benefit of Joseph and Mary, we read at the end that Jesus was, in fact, obedient to them after this, that he, he fulfilled his duty as a son. But for Jesus, we see that his primary identity informed how he viewed his secondary identity. His primary identity being the Son of God, informed how he was going to be the son of Mary and Joseph. It shaped, it, it, it made the context, it built the box for which he would operate within about being the son of Mary and Joseph. Right now, are, are we being driven by, by that primary identity? Are we being driven by the fact that we are, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God? Are we being driven by the fact that now my hope is in Christ? My hope is in the maker of the heavens and the maker of the stars, the maker of the universe. Is, is my hope in, in that? And is that, is that shaping my focus and my perspective on everything else? Is, is that, is, has that narrowed my vision on how I see everything else? Do, do I look at the world based on the fact that I am a son of God or that I am a daughter of God? Does that, does that frame the context? for everything, or 
Am I taking those things that, that are outside the box and trying to view everything in my life based on something that wasn't designed to be able to create a view for your life? See, we get these things out of order and we get them out of focus and we get, them, we get the second or the third or the fourth thing up on top of the list and all of a sudden this thing that was never designed to drive our life is driving our life and no wonder our lives look like chaos. It's because our lives cannot work in the context of the second, third, fourth, or fifth identity that we have. The only way for all of it to make sense, the only way for all of it to come together is if we get that first identity right, that I am a son of God, and because I'm a son of God, that is going to drive my decisions in my career, my decisions in my family, my decisions in my community, my decisions in whatever I get involved in outside of, of, of the church, whatever you call it, is driven by my relationship with God. And in fact, it all becomes God. And we don't see these things any longer as competing with my relationship with God, but all of a sudden I've got the right perspective and I see it in the right way. And so now, now I'm, looking, I'm looking at my job as though, that's one of the reasons that we, we ask these questions and talk about it, is because God puts you in your, in your job in the place that you work for his higher purpose. And when you realize that you are a son of God, that you are a daughter of God, and when you go into that workplace, then it shapes the way you approach work. But if we don't have that perspective, if we don't have that as our primary identity, then that becomes the most important thing, and that starts to shape who we are. Same thing in our, in our families, that, that as mothers and fathers, or as sons and daughters of our earthly mothers and fathers, that, that, that the way that, we, that we're supposed to see things is that I am in this family, and being a part of this family is service to God. Being a part of this family is worshiping God. Being a part of this family is a way that I honor God. And, and when that's right, when my primary identity is God first, He is my Father, He is ruler over everything, then everything else starts to make sense. But when that gets out of order, everything starts to fall apart. When our secondary identity drives our perspective of our primary identity, we'll always be asking the wrong questions. When our secondary identity drives our perspective of our primary identity, we'll always ask the wrong questions. So the questions we ask, you know, you know am, I, am, I, am I being a good parent? Am I being a good mother? Am I being a good father? Am, am I in the right job? Am I in the right career path? Am I going in the right direction? How about with my, you know, my neighbors and the relationships I'm building there? You know, or should I move to, to a different neighborhood? Or whatever those things are, those, those can kind of become dominating, but that's not the right question because that's secondary. The, the perspective is, I'm a son of the Most High God. I'm a, I'm a daughter of the Most High God. So all this stuff kind of becomes subservient and immaterial and, and less important. And what becomes important is God in me and God through me. So this morning, I just want to ask, are you, are you asking the right questions? God is not limited in any way like we saw in the, in the clip. His responses are not limited, but, but maybe you've been asking God questions and not feeling like you're getting an answer, and maybe it's because you're asking the wrong question. 
Maybe the question you're asking is, you know, is for something that's secondary or third or fourth or fifth when what God is most interested in is you being all His. Are you asking the right questions? I'm going to ask the worship team to come and we'll join together in a song. We'll take communion. I ask that you come forward and get the elements for communion during the song. We'll take the elements together after the song. But I just want to pray for us as we as we move on. So would you stand? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Heavenly Father, for every single one of us in this room, I ask that in this moment that we have right now, And if there's anything in our life that's secondary or third or fourth or fifth that's worked its way into that first position, if there's, if there's chaos in our life and we don't know why, we don't understand why things just seem out of control, it seem not to make any sense, if, if there's anything in our life that's just out of balance or out of whack, I pray, Father, right now in this moment as we're gathered together like Paul prayed with the, with the Spirit of Christ living in us, Father, bring those things to the forefront of our mind. I pray for each and every one of us that, that those things that, that should be second, third, fourth, or fifth that, that have crept up into that first position, Father, I pray that you would bring them right at the very front of our mind right now in this moment, that you would show them to us. And if there's anything in us that is taking the place of where you should be in our life, I pray, Father, that you would show that. Just, just put it right there, clear to us right now in this moment. And Father, I pray if, there's, if work has crept up there for some of us, as it often does, myself included, that, that our job can just kind of take over. Or... I pray that, Father, you would help us to not only see that, but to turn away from that, to repent and walk away from that and, and walk towards you. If, if status for some of us has become the most important thing and the way we are perceived by the people around us has become more important than you, Father, I pray that you would show that to us right now in this moment and help us, Father, to surrender to you, to lay that down and just leave it down on the ground and not pick that up, but, but to put it in its place and, and put you in your place. Maybe for some of us it might be worry, maybe Maybe we're worried about things that we shouldn't be worried about that you have under control and, and we really just don't need to be worried about it, but we've allowed worrying about these things to become more important than you and we've put worry in that number one spot. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to lay that down. And For all of us, I pray, Father, right now in, in our hearts, fill us to overflowing in our hearts with sonship, with with, with a, a daughtership, that, that we would be filled to overflowing with the identity that I am his, that I am 
my father's and that my father is mine, fillest to overflowing, that I belong to the father, I belong to the God, to the creator of the universe, that, that my identity is not based in what I can perform or what I can achieve, my identity is not based on, on the things that I can accomplish in my life, but my identity is based on the fact that I have received this great gift from my father of Jesus Christ through the gift of the cross and through the gift of his resurrection and through the gift of his ascension and the gift of his sending his Holy Spirit to dwell in me that I have received the gift of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ living in me and that is my identity. That is who I am. And that is what you want me to be focused on and that as my identity in you develops and forms that that starts to shape how I see the entire world. I pray that for all of us. Help us to see the world through your eyes, through the perspective of the Creator. And Father, as, as you give us that perspective, that way of seeing, help us to see that, that our purpose here is so much greater than for our own selves and our own gain, but that you've put us here to love you and to love others in a radical kind of love, and that you want us to be about something more than just ourselves that you've called us to be about more than just getting what we can for ourselves in this life, but that you want us to serve and to give our life for the good of others. And fill us with your spirit to live and to act out that calling on our lives for your glory and for building up your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.